where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to this show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed, including the one where I talk about rescuing bodies from underwater caves. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. This is going to be a different kind of show, though I suppose, truth be told, each episode here is a bit different, but this baby may be more unique than others if we allow such an expression. I'm going to be talking, and it will be just me today, I'm going to be talking about what's going on in my head and your head too, I assume. Of course, one can never exactly get inside the head of other people, but I'm going to be thinking about this from the perspective that is the perspective of this show in general, the unknown knowns, the things we don't know that we do know. One of the things in that category is certainly the contents of our own head, which fall in some kind of liminal space, I suppose, between the known and the unknown. They're the thing that goes on behind the scenes, and we can focus on them or not at our will, seemingly, but we can't really turn them off, at least, not in any easy way. And anytime we access them, that alters them. There's a feedback mechanism that happens when we look inside our own brains. By looking at our thoughts, we alter our thoughts. Our thoughts are about our thoughts. You can easily see how one might end up down a rabbit hole here. I'm going to do my best to avoid rabbit holes in this show, though, as usual, there may be some things that look like digressions and may, in fact, be digressions. What I want to look at today is what is going on inside our heads, especially as influenced by the current state of our environments. How are we managing? How are we dealing? This is a tricky moment for people's brains. I can sense that. I can tell it because of the conversations I have in person and online, and because I think our brains were born to struggle. That's just their nature. It's why some people have to sit for hours a day staring at nothing just to get their brains to calm down. If calm brains happen naturally, that wouldn't be necessary. We'd all walk around in zen-like states all of the time. One of the implications is that maybe we're not meant to be in a state of Zen, at least not all the time. Maybe we're meant to have a lot of crap in our brains. Maybe that works, evolutionary speaking. But if so, it still sucks, and there are limits to how useful that could be, right? If someone else was dropped right now inside of your brain and could hear each and every one of your thoughts, what would they think? How would they perceive the narrative going through your head? Would they be startled? Would they be appalled? I'm guessing that if you are like most people, if someone else was dropped down inside your brain and was there witnessing your thoughts as they went by, they might not enjoy the experience. They might be astounded at the amount of garbage that you have running through your brain at any given time and the loops you cycle through over and over for no apparent reason. The problems we seem to be working on that aren't really problems that can be solved, the endless rerunning of scenarios that have already passed and can't be done differently, the weird obsessions and concerns we have that no one else actually cares about, do our toes look funny? 
does the UPS guy think I'm a lush because I answered the door with a drink in my hand? I think all of us likely have some of those problems that aren't really problems, but our brain is working on them anyway, as if they were over and over for no particular benefit. This seems to be part of the nature of being a human being. We have these brains and mostly we can't turn them off. They're literally addicted to their own pointless loops. If we're lucky, when we sleep, our brains go into a resting state and either we have pleasant dreams or no dreams at all, but there's no guarantee of that. And then when we're awake, it's rare that we get a moment of perfect stillness. And then we often interrupt that moment by remarking on it internally. Ooh, that was a really good moment, immediately killing the moment. Beyond the problems real and imagined, we often have thoughts going through our head that are intrusive or unpleasant, and one has to wonder, why is that? What is the purpose of it? There must be some reason, evolutionarily speaking, right? Or if there isn't a directly advantageous reason for it, it must be that it's not that harmful. Those thought patterns must reflect the world around us in a way that works, if not at the personal level, then at least on the social plane, some benefit to the interplay between the thoughts going through our heads and the nature of our current society. I'm certain that this is the case. Can we understand the world by understanding what's going on in our own heads, by what we've allowed to enter, by what's been put there? Maybe we need to start thinking about our individual and collective mental health as a kind of canary in the coal mine for our society's health in general. If so, how are things going for us? Before I get to an answer to that, a reminder that you are listening to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk, and we are prying open our craniums to take a look inside and see what the contents say about us and about the world. I think, at a minimum, we can say for sure that we have these thoughts that are highly influenced by the nature of our society, and our society is a highly technological one that is, in many ways, very, very different from the ones that have come before. It's a highly intermediated one in the sense that we interact not so much directly with the world, but through our tools and through other people. You don't plant your corn and you don't harvest it. Even and even if you are a farmer like my brother-in-law, who has several dozen dairy cows and fields of hay, you use tractors to do your baling, and you have an app that can tell you which cow is your number one producer and that she helped you produce 2% more milk this week than the last. And then that milk gets hauled off by big trucks that are just one of many links in a supply chain that ends all over the continent, including at the cafe where I go every morning to click on a keyboard in ways that will undoubtedly impact the world in ways I intend and many others that I don't. Still with me? I won't blame you if your brain drifted along with mine. That's what our brains do. They drift and they loop. I've grown to believe that one of the key evolutionary roles of religion, or at least one of the things it does that's allowed it to be compatible with so many human civilizations, is that it provides an outlet and a focus for these kind of thoughts, which may be a problem for us right now in this age when religion is on life support here in the West. What, what am I talking about? Assuming that, like me, you aren't embedded in a deeply religious community, you are not Amish or something like that, and shout out to all my Amish fans, but if you're not part of a community like that, then what's happening in your head is most likely something that if you looked at it from the outside would seem like OCD. 
I think this is natural. One of the things that religions do is come in and provide a substitute for these repetitive OCD-like thoughts that we have going through our heads. If you look at something like counting rosary beads or some of the Jewish traditions, they look a lot like OCD behavior. So it could be that these religious traditions are a substitute for our brain's own natural tendency to get stuck or to loop. They provide some external out for that in the form of something that is socially acceptable, at least within that group, and doesn't make people feel like they're crazy. I don't think it's a coincidence that the pandemic, which has become for many people a focal point of religious intensity, has among its calming rituals things that look exactly like OCD behavior, such as obsessive hand washing. Regardless, what do we do with the tendencies of our brains? That's the question. And that's to some extent the question that I'm asking here on this episode. Your brain is under your control. Your brain is also in some ways not under your control. It's a weird dance. One of the things, the thoughts that comes up over and over again on this show is that we don't have a singular mind. We literally contain multitudes, even if we don't have schizophrenia. How is that possible? Well, we have our brain, our mind, and we think of that as being us, but it's not the entirety of us. We also have a body, and that body influences us. We have chemicals going through our body. We have hormones, and these things impact us. They impact not just our emotions, but our thoughts, because our emotions impact our thoughts. We have a feedback mechanism between our body and our brain that is continually happening, one of the biggest feedback loops, especially if you're me, is between the brain and the belly. And for the record, we do have a brain in our belly. For those who don't know, this brain, this belly brain, is about the size of a cat's in terms of the number of neurons. And sometimes I think my own is every bit as stubborn as a cat. Our belly brains continually process information as they get it, though we can't see its thinking in the same way that we seem to be able to access the consciousness in our upper brains, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not working. I sometimes find that I'm able to keep track of whether I've eaten the last bite of food, even if it was across the room, even if it was hours ago and I left the plate on my desk, and my memory for where I've left things in general is very poor. How am I able to do so well when it comes to food in terms of memory? Who knows, but I suspect that it's my belly brain that's tracking that info for me. In a sense, that would make sense. Evolutionary, my squirrel belly brain knows where all the nuts are stored. We have multiple forms of us in the sense that our body will do its own thing as well uh, without our conscious input often. For many of our actions, our brains can override them, take conscious control. But if we're not paying attention, our bodies will do their own thing and act independently. I've used this example before on the show, but think back to when you had a canker sore or some other injury in your mouth. Your tongue will go and explore it and flick it, and then your brain may go, yes, I know, it's there, please stop playing with it because it's only going to make it worse. And your tongue will desist from flicking that canker sore for a while, and then as you go back about your business, you may find that your tongue has gone right back to that sore as it is continuing to explore it again without you telling it to. 
It does that on its own because your brain has its own imperative to scan its environment for objects that require attention, either by the tongue itself, as in that piece of food lodged in between your molars that needs dislodging, or by your head's brain if it's something that needs conscious attention. I know this is a funny way to look at your tongue, but I don't know any better way to understand it. Your tongue's brain has decided that it wants to keep going and exploring this sore because it's unusual. It's decided it shouldn't be there in your mouth, and so it's checking it out. And even if your brain tells it, yes, I get that it's there, you can stop doing that. It will continue to go back and explore, and it may take a great deal of conscious effort from your mind to override this and to override a lot of behaviors that are similar. As I'm talking here into the microphone, I just noticed now as I look down at my finger that it's playing with a pen. Did I tell it to do that? No, my fingers just decided that they wanted to play with the pen while I was talking into the microphone, and that's that. Much of the time, these semi-autonomous behaviors and these semi-autonomous thoughts that comprise the loops and obsessions we have aren't that big of a deal. As I've said, they seem to be baked in to who we are as humans, and we've survived as humans for a very long time. But times have changed, and in a moment, I'm going to talk about how these autopilot behaviors are being hijacked in some very nasty ways that most certainly are not in our best interests. Just a reminder, though, we're talking about our many brains and their routines, and if you're wondering what I mean by our many brains, you likely missed the beginning of this show, which, like all episodes, can be downloaded after it airs from mattasher.com. To get back to these routines, as I say, many of them are benign, like my hand's decision to fiddle with a pen while I record, and uh, for the record, I am still playing with that pen. Other thoughts are not so beneficial, and those not so beneficial ones are often encouraged by the world around us. This situation is nothing new. The history of the world is people attempting to control other people's behavior by controlling their minds, by hijacking our brain's needs. Tobacco companies have spent a lot of time and money figuring out the right nicotine levels to ring our brain's bells just right to deliver the optimally addictive buzz. These hijacking attempts with addictive chemicals are now well understood, if still a very large problem in our society. But we have newer and more potent forms of brain hijacking to contend with, ones that we have yet to develop natural defenses against, and which are omnipresent and inescapable unless you are among the Amish I mentioned earlier. We are the very first generation that has had to battle with addiction against technology companies that are spending billions, yes, literally billions of dollars, trying to get and keep us addicted. This is new. I don't think that there's ever been anything that compares to the level of effort among social media, entertainment, and gaming companies to get us to keep scrolling and swiping, to keep linking and retweeting and commenting and watching. You have a huge number of highly talented engineers who are making a huge effort to build and tweak these things in order to get us addicted to them and to use them, even if we know in some part of our brains that this is not advantageous to us. 
This also leads to pathologies not just at the personal but at the social level because you have online communities in which the people who are the most addicted are the most active and vice versa. This sends a signal out to the broader world that these concerns of these addicted and obsessed subset of people are the concerns of everyone at the broader community level, when in fact it may be that these concerns are the concerns of people who are not mentally well. And I say this not to stigmatize, uh, we are all mentally unwell to some extent, and I have very close relationships with people who have struggled with mental health issues in dramatic ways and are open about those struggles. I have my own rolling addictions to various forms of internet usage that are not always the most helpful. In just the past years, I've gone in and out of excessive use of Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Whether or not my behavior fits the literal definition of addiction, I'm certainly at times spending much more time on these than is useful. Part of my behavior is justified because I have worked and continue to work in the tech sector. I, I need to know what's going on and understand the new hotness, whatever it may be. But a lot of it isn't justified by that. A lot of it is just that I've decided to spend my time on these apps because they light up my brain. And that's probably not a good thing because of the impact it has on my brain. This is one of the reasons I don't post much to social media. I find that when I do, I tend to get pulled in much more than I would like, and this is really bad for my mental health. So I back away when that starts to happen, and I delete apps if I notice myself opening them up unconsciously. This is one way that I deal with the pull of tech, but there's no way to avoid that pull entirely. Nearly every aspect of modern life pushes it at us. I liken the situation that we're all in to having been given a second job as a wine taster. This job is intermittent but continual. Every time we have to go online to get something done, and more and more it's impossible to get anything done without email or a website or an app, we are taking in a little bit of wine, a little sip. We need to evaluate it to act on the taste and then spit it out. You do spit it out each time, right? You're not one of those people who takes the need to make a doctor's appointment online as an excuse to check in with Facebook while you're there, right? Any counselor with 10 functioning brain cells would, at a minimum, give addicts this advice. Remove yourself from the sources of your addiction to the extent possible. If you're an alcoholic, quit working as a bartender or a wine taster. The situation we find ourselves in is this. All roads lead through the internet. There is no way to escape that and be part of modern society. Every single company that you call tries to direct you immediately to their website because it's cheaper for them. If you go there, every government agency that you're going to interact with is going to demand that you do some portion of that online, which I think is particularly dreadful because many people don't have internet access, even in this day and age, or aren't very good at using it. And some of us, like myself, would actually prefer not to. We prefer to be dealing with human beings. I don't want a second job as a wine tester. I know that it's bad for me. 
But it is the reality that all roads right now seem to lead through the internet, and there's not much we can do about it. So if you tend towards addictive behaviors while you're online, well, then you're like an alcoholic who works as a wine taster, and everywhere you go, people are offering you a drink, which, by the way, might literally happen down here in the Keys, so keep that in mind if you decide to move down here, which I actually do recommend because there is no better place to be right now. But just right now, I need to take a break. When we get back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the analogy of the alcoholic wine taster. And also, we're going to talk about the milk crate challenge because we need to talk about that. Getting back to the analogy of the alcoholic wine taster, and this is Matt Asher on Keys Talk 1025, it's not booze that's being pushed into our hands, it's digital experiences being pushed into our heads, mental stimulus in basically its raw form. And your bartender is not just a bartender, he's a bartending robot built by a half-trillion-dollar tech company that has spent extraordinary amounts of money figuring out just the right pitch for you. It's not just that one robotender with that tempting shot of stimulus. It's an array of robots offering up the most enticing content you've ever seen, just waiting. All you have to do is click. If you're anything like me or millions and millions of other people, you've probably had that experience where you wandered online to do one thing, and then several hours later, you're looking at cat videos and you have no idea what happened. How did you get there? How is it that you ended up in a place where you are consuming information and images that have nothing at all to do with your original mission online? One of the trickiest things I find as someone who does have to regularly seek out information online is that it's often unclear where the stopping point is. When do you go from the useful activity of seeking content and trying to understand something or solve a problem to the point where you're looking at cats? And in theory, that might seem like a bright line, but in reality, you start out at one website that seems promising, and then you click on a link, and maybe it's slightly less promising, but the first website didn't work out for you. So now you need to go and look at this other website that may be a little bit lower probability of finding what you want, but you have to keep looking. So you go to that one, and then you go to another one and another one. And it's not like at any one point you've gone from, this is definitely on task, to this is definitely off task. It just sort of happens. I talk a lot about the idea of marginality on this show. I think it's an extremely important thing to understand if we're going to live good lives and to make sense of our world. Our world is a world of marginality. People aren't all one thing or all another, and our activities aren't all doing one thing or exactly the opposite thing. They're mixed up and complicated, and often what matters isn't necessarily where we're at it right at this particular moment, but the direction. 
that direction matters. Even small movements in a direction can matter. Another way of understanding marginality is to say that everything counts. There's that song lyric, everything counts in large amounts. I would amend that, that everything counts in all amounts. You don't go from a place of, generally speaking, of being 100% focused to being 0% focused. It's a road from one to the other, and it takes you through all of the gradations. And of course, the same is true with mental health. It's rare that we go from being the absolute picture of mental health to being basket cases. I'm talking right now about what's going on in our brains and about what we can do about that, how we understand it, and what we can do to make that better. This is not a self-help show, certainly not in any direct way. This is a show about trying to understand the world. Part of trying to understand the world and those unknown knowns is looking inside of our own brains and figuring out what is going on there, what may have been slipped in without us realizing it. These things we know because they are in our own brains, but we don't know that we know them because we haven't surfaced them for examination. Often this process of internal discovery is not so pleasant. I've had more than one drug trip and I do recommend the occasional use of psychedelics in a safe setting with people you trust that help me understand the mess inside my head. These were not fun trips, but super helpful as a kind of mental cleanse, a way to peer inside my brain and see the habits and hamster wheels that weren't so helpful to me. But let's also set aside molecular gateways into the mind and get back into the ways in which our brains are now, in a sense, pitted against multinational corporations that have multi-billion dollar budgets. Budgets dedicated exclusively to addicting us, in essence, to getting us to continue clicking and swiping and scrolling and using their product absolutely as much as possible. This is not a fair fight. We do not yet collectively have antibodies against this kind of effort to dominate our attention. I suspect that over time, we will develop mechanisms to rein in the power of those appeals for our attention. We will come up with cultural or religious norms that protect us from spending all evening on TikTok, but we don't have those yet. It's taking us time, socially and individually, to get there. As I've said, I've run through this a few times myself uh, with particular social media outlets that I find myself in a toxic relationship with in terms of feeling drawn to them in ways that aren't easy for me to walk away from. My solution was to just uninstall the app and move on. I could, If I couldn't use these applications in a responsible way, I would just give up on using them altogether. You may have had the same experience with particular apps or games where, like me, you may have downloaded a game and then found you're spending four hours a day playing it, and then you just delete it off your phone to remove the temptation. That's a solution that can work for individual apps or things like that, but it doesn't solve the broader problem that you are in a perpetual war for your own mind and its free cycles. If you think about 
a mind like a CPU. It has these cycles that are occupied with something, and the websites we use, they'd prefer that it be occupied with consuming their content or clicking on their links. But this is not necessarily what we would want if we took a step back and thought about what was appropriate for us. The most tricky ones are the social networks because you are fighting not just against this multinational behemoth and its multi-billion dollar efforts to direct your attention, but you're also fighting against basic human nature, which is if people you know are on there and they're having conversations, well, you want to be a part of that conversation. I think that's hardwired into us as human beings not to want to miss out this FOMO or fear of missing out. This is not at all unique to us in modern society. It is our nature as human beings. If a discussion is happening and it might have an impact on us, we want to know what's going on there. We need to be a part of it. This is why you have sleeper networks like Nextdoor that are kind of like sleeper cell social media networks, ones that people don't talk about a lot but can be highly addictive in their own way because these are your neighbors and they might be talking about you or your lawn. And if so, what are they saying? This need to know is baked into us as human beings. It matters to us. And I don't think there will ever come a time when it won't unless the nature of human beings changes, which is as I understand it, in terms of evolution, a very slow process that will take thousands of years. Meanwhile, though, we are in essence doing battle with these tech giants for control over our own brains, which they want to direct as much as possible. Taking a step back here, and I'm talking about the effort of multinationals to control our brains, and I'm using the term they, just want to note that using they in this context is tricky. It makes it seem conspiratorial, but we need to recognize and face what's happening here. There are individual people at these companies whose job it is to try to increase the amount of time we spend using a service. They do endless tests on us to find out what works best. They call these A-B tests, where a social network will test out a new feature or, say, change the color of a button very slightly, and they'll test if this new shade of green gets more clicks. Individually, these changes are not going to have that huge an impact, but over time, and over a user base of millions or billions of people, those tiny tweaks, they add up. We get into discussions of free will here, I think our understanding of free will would especially benefit from more talk about marginality, that thing I keep mentioning. We need to grok that evaluating free will is not about looking for unlimited freedom or strict determinism. This is the mistake that people who don't believe in free will so often make. People like Sam Harris, they think that the only way to have free will is to have unlimited or unbounded free will. But I don't think that's correct. Uh, the other very much related mistake they make is thinking that if you can't go and point out exactly where the free will is and where it enters, then it doesn't exist. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of free will. It's like those people who, at the dawn of the computer age, said that everything our minds can do can be replicated by a computer. And when challenged on this, they say, well, tell me a thing that our brain can do in precise and unambiguous language, and I can get the computer to do that. That, 
of course, is not the point. The point is that the brain is doing something that we can't describe in precise language or with a precise algorithm. I can tell that right now, as I'm trying to describe this very concept and having a problem with it, that there are things going on inside of us and between us that our language is insufficient to explain. The very same thing applies to free will and thinking that you, if you can't pin it down, it's not there. That ignores marginality. It assumes that free will means some aspect of us must be completely unconstrained and not exist on a continuum between freedom and being bound. I think we need to realize that our free will is in some sense battling these companies and their efforts to control our thoughts and direct our actions. I'm not suggesting that these companies have a vested interest in making us think in very specific ways, though certainly it is the case that these companies often push the political narratives that are popular with their upper-level employees, which in turn often align with established narratives that are the narratives held by those in power. That is certainly the case. In general, though, I think that the vested interest of these companies whose platforms we use, platforms like Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and others, their vested interest isn't in controlling our brains at a microscopic level. It's not in eliminating our free will entirely. Or put another way, to some extent, they don't care which videos we watch, they just want that part of our brain that would go, oh, it's time to close this app for the night and go to bed. They want that part of our brains to go away. That part of our free will that would put down the phone and walk outside into the sunshine, or go to bed or pick up a book or something else. That's the part of the free will that they really care about removing. I suspect that free will, it's a bit like every other aspect of ourselves. It's a skill, and it's like our muscles. We have to use them or we lose them, and we have to use them in deliberate ways. It's very possible that as a human being, we are walking around almost like a zombie. We get into these routines and follow those routines unthinkingly, or not even to be in a routine, but you are just buffeted and reactive to the stimulus around us, and uh, you don't put any space between that stimulus and the response. To be continually triggered by our environments to react to certain things, that doesn't leave a lot of space for free will. It doesn't leave a lot of space for independent thought. We're going along to get along, even if going along involves getting upset, along with everyone else, about something in our environment. In fact, a lot of what drives engagement is also making us upset. This is one of the most pathological aspects of our current set of social media networks. A lot of what they do is present us with things that will make us upset, because when we're upset at some piece of content, we're more likely to engage with it. We're more likely to spend time commenting or sharing Enraged is engaged, and we stay when we're engaged, and we leave when we're indifferent to content, or content that is maybe nice, but not so nice that we can't just put it down and go do something else. What compels us is often not positive stuff. It's seeing things that aggravate us, as I say, that trigger us, and being triggered, especially getting into the habit of being triggered over and over, this is the loop that I sometimes call the fear, anger, frustration loop, or FAF. 
I've been in that loop, and it can be very hard to get out of. Your free will, your volition has been tampered down in some way by the content that you're consuming, and you are now driven to continue consuming it, or even if you do put it down, some part of your brain is itching to pick it back up. It gives you a dopamine hit, and I'm going to talk some more about dopamine hits, and I will get to that milk crate challenge in just a bit when we pick things back up. Welcome to the internet. Have a look around. Anything that brain of yours can think of can be found. We've got mountains of content, some better, some worse. If none of it's of interest to you, you'd be the first. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show on Keys Talk FM. We are talking about dopamine hits. I certainly hope this show is your dopamine hit of the week every Saturday at 6 p.m. We're talking about dopamine hits and not just how they come from positive things that we're exposed to, but negative things too. In a comic I wrote, I quoted an otherwise forgettable graphic novel about bike thief Igor Kank. At one point, Kank talks about monkey factor, our residual need as humans for the extreme stimulation that was likely a regular part of human experience way back when, but now we only get from scary movies or skydiving or from looking at videos of people getting hurt, and I will get to that in a moment. This Craving is so strong that if you put people alone in a room with a device that shocks them, a device that you previously were unable to convince them to use by paying them, say with $5, but if you've left them alone in the room now with that device and nothing else, they will likely use it because the excitement of pain is better than the boredom or discomfort of sitting alone with our thoughts. We crave that stimulus. It's our nature to desire that kind of spiking of activity inside our own brains. We get dopamine hits from good things, and we get dopamine hits from bad things. There's a lot of exploring to be done with that when you know it and you explore it consciously, this being radio. I'm not going to go into all the possibilities, but a lot of people have found a lot of pleasure in pain or in controlled forms of pain, perhaps I should say, with other consenting adults. Let's just leave it at that. But setting aside those forms of stimulation, I think it's worth noting that we have always enjoyed seeing others get hurt too. In the past, this desire was fed with horrible public displays of pain. To our great credit, Western civilization seems to have moved on from that, at least for now, but I do see some concerning signs. And it's time that we had a talk about the milk crate challenge. If you haven't seen the videos of this latest viral challenge, here's how it work. Someone sets up a pyramid of ascending and then descending milk crates. The pyramid is one crate wide and usually seven crates tall at the peak. The challenge is to walk up one side and down the other without falling or touching the crates with your hands. This turns out to be unexpectedly difficult. Depending on the ground that these milk crates are on, they get quite unstable, especially as people get close to the top. If the challenge is being done on grass, then it is almost certainly the case that by the time someone gets to the seventh crate, 
it's going to be very wobbly and they'll need to have a high degree of balance in order not to fall. And if they do fall, it's not just a matter of hitting the grass from what is probably about six or seven feet high, that is bad, but much worse is that you are falling onto milk crates that are now chaotically strewn about as you become more and more wobbly or eventually tumble off, hitting a jumble of very unforgiving crates with various parts of your body. In the videos, you can see that people have broken their arms or seriously injured other parts of their body. There are rumors that people have died doing this. Some people attempt it over flat pavement, which makes the pyramid more stable, but if they fall, the stakes are much, much higher, as you can imagine. The reason I bring this up is because I think that something has happened online in terms of the videos that average users consume as represented by the viral hits. There's been a kind of amping up. If you look at the trends among these over the past seven or eight years, you went from things that were very innocent and fun. You had the Harlem Shake where people were just in a group wiggling around or planking, which was just posing for a pic while stretched out like a board on top of something. Then you had challenges that were unpleasant, but in a limited way. You had people trying to eat an entire spoonful of cinnamon, which apparently is impossible to do without water. And you had the water bucket challenge. This was somehow connected to raising money for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Someone would dump a bucket of ice water over you, and Lou himself would apparently smile down on you for your dedication to overcoming his affliction. Obviously, having an ice water bucket dumped on you is unpleasant, but not particularly damaging to you as a person. You towel off, dry off, get warm, and that's that. Now, though, mainstream mimetic challenges seem to have moved into a darker area. The milk crate challenge seems to be merely the tip of the pyramid for these, so to speak. There's certainly always been a place in our culture for people finding people getting hurt funny, especially in cartoons on Sunday mornings. But beyond that, even with real people, America's funniest home videos relied on that, the dad getting hit in the nuts by their kid swinging a wiffle ball bat. That was one of the mainstays of the show, as I recall. But usually we were laughing at someone who wasn't doing great damage to themselves. It was a minor slip or fall. It wasn't them tumbling down and cracking their head on the pavement or breaking their arm on a milk crate. What seems to have happened is a kind of collective hedonic adaptation. We got used to one level, which we collectively watched over and over online, and now we've moved on to something that's a bit more extreme, more stimulating. We've grown tired of shocking our fingers with the buzzer that was left with us in the room. So we've begun testing it out on other, let's just say, more sensitive parts of our body. I think we understand what effect this is going to have on our culture even less then we understand the effect it's having on our individual brains. The extraordinary availability of these kinds of things online, like the milk crate videos, that's going to leave a mark in more ways than one. If you haven't checked it out, there's a Bo Burnham special on Netflix right now that uh, has a really great song. Bo Burnham is a comic and a musician. He's kind of a modern-day Tom Lehrer for the older folks who might remember him. 
Bo has this absolutely brilliant song about the internet, a little bit of everything all of the time, which runs through the kind of schizophrenic euphoric sickness that happens if you spend enough time partaking in this never-ending buffet of stimulus. To bring this back to the concept of free will and the margin, and I am Matt Asher on Keys Talk Radio. We are talking about stimulus and multi-billion dollar corporations and the impact they have on our ability to really to control our own minds, our, our brains, which I believe have the capacity for free will, but they're operating in the context of these corporations that would like to co-opt our consciousness at the very least to get us to stay on their sites and never leave their walled gardens. One of the infamous examples of this kind of engineering, thinking back to Netflix, is that the next video will start automatically unless you cancel it. You don't have to do anything by default. Netflix will feed you a continual loop of hour after hour of streaming videos. So will YouTube, so will TikTok, so will, in fact, any number of these networks, they will feed you up a little bit of everything all of the time, and they will tailor it to your revealed preferences, which is just a fancy way of saying what you really want as opposed to what you might claim to want. For those who haven't used the TikTok app, and I recommend not using it if you can avoid it as it might just suck you in, one of the things it did exceptionally well was figuring out what to show you just based on your likes and your pattern of moving on to the next video before the one you're watching right now has finished. You don't choose the next video, it does it based on those revealed preferences. And then every now and then the algorithm throws in a curveball just to see if you like it. It's actually exceptionally good at doing this, which makes it exceptionally addictive. And that's the final topic I want to talk about here is those algorithms, in particular artificial intelligence. What does artificial intelligence have to do with what we've been talking about other than that is the basis of the algorithms behind the, the social network feeds? One of the things I've discussed before is that what's happening right now is not just a computer doing its thing. What's happening right now is that we are the computers. The computer is becoming symbiotic with us, and that's not just your own laptop, your computer. That is the hive mind, our hive mind, and the hive mind that is the AIs that control our world. This may seem a bit out there, but think about the fact that you have the Waze app on your phone. If you're like me, and for those who don't know, the Waze app is a directions app. It helps you get from one place to another as efficiently as possible. And how does the Waze app do what it does? Well, it calculates the best route to somewhere by figuring out how long it's going to get there. That should seem obvious and the best path. But if you think about it, it's not actually the Waze app per se that is calculating the best route from point A to point B and estimating how long it's going to take to get there. That computation is actually done by real people driving real cars. If you're driving your car with the Waze app on your phone, you are the computer. How long it does it take to get from downtown to a suburban location? Or how long does it take to get from the airport to downtown? 
Every time you are driving around with your Waze app activated, you are doing the computation for that app. You are the computer, as is everyone else who has that app and is driving around. We don't talk a lot about this, but we are the computers that are teaching the computers about the world. Funny thing to think about, no? This is, of course, because Waze doesn't have any other way to know about the world. The only way it can figure this out, how long it takes to get from point A to point B, the only way it can estimate is based on your real-world experiences. Again, you are the computer, and the Waze app needs you to compute these times in order to generate estimates. Yes, it could do some things based on the fact that it knows distances and it knows the speed limits, but if it really wants to know how long it's going to take for a particular drive going over particular roads, it needs to know the local traffic. And you are the ones who tell it what that local traffic is because you're going 15 miles per hour on the freeway, and it can tell that you're in a pileup. So maybe you can see how we're becoming symbiotic with these phones and these apps, but what does that have to do with us in terms of free will? What does that do in terms of our long-term mental health? What does it do in terms of our patterns of thought? These are known unknowns, the reverse of what we usually talk about on this show. There will be an impact, as I say, there will be a mark that this leaves, but I think we're a long way away from understanding what this impact is going to be. And unfortunately, I am out of time for this show. Hope you enjoyed this very different, very unique show. And we will likely be back with another regular episode when we are back next Saturday at 6 p.m. on Keystalk FM 1025 and 96.9 FM in South Florida or on mattasher.com where you can get a little bit of everything, at least when it comes to this show, all of the time. Thank you.